0: Just actually a couple of verses, verses 24 and 25, and um, this will be our last text in John. This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's uh, now uh, jump into this passage. You may be seated. My mother and my father, if you knew him, and my English teacher, Mrs. Hughes, growing up, all made a fuss about my use of the English language when I um, would speak and when I would write. They corrected my grammar They challenged me in my pronunciation. I can remember my dad saying, how now, brown cow, forcing me to sit down and watch, you know, Pygmalion and stuff like that. They forced me to look it up in the dictionary so I could learn how to spell correctly. We didn't have spell check back in those days. Spell check, I thought, was mom, but mom would always say, look it up in the dictionary. By the way, a dictionary is a book that has words in it, just in case you're wondering, okay? Um, But all of them agreed on one thing, and I remember this vividly avoid the use of the word thing in your communication. Because thing is a very weak English word, it's a word that kind of is the last resort. When you can't think of any other word to use, you say thing, right? And so as I I look back on that, that was actually really good advice because it forced me to think through specific words that I need to say either in writing or in speaking, although there are many times I will use the word thing because I'm like everyone else and can't figure out exactly how I want to say it. Thing can kind of be that that catch-all word to kind of cover me there. Now, the question, though, is what is a thing? Hmm. Now, for some of you young people, you say, aha, I'm with you, Pastor Rod. Thing is one of the cartoon characters that's part of the Fantastic Four, right? You saying, yeah, that's right, I'm with you there. Actually, um, a thing is something. A thing, historically, was an assembly that would take place in the Scandinavian culture. I don't know if you knew that. When Vikings got together with their chieftains and with their king, they would gather together for a thing. That's what it was. So they would literally say to each other, are you going to the thing this year? And the other person would say, yes, I'm going to the thing this year. Or, hey, I'll see you at the thing. Or, that thing was a waste of my time. So in that context, then, a thing was an important matter. And this morning, as we come to the last two verses in John's Gospel, John has some very important things to share with us. He wants us to be paying attention to these things, to understand what those things are, as well as be assured and encouraged to consider them. Now, on the wall in a Winshuler's restaurant in Marshall, Michigan, there's a lot of uh, um, thoughtful sayings. One of them, as I remember from years ago, is this, facts are stubborn things. Facts are stubborn things. Now, think through that statement a little bit here. The point, I believe, and you can agree or disagree, but I think the point here is this, that it's hard to deny facts, they, go, they you know, they're there. They don't go away. It's hard to squeeze out from under the truth that is undeniable. You might even say it this way. It's difficult to disprove a truth that is evidently clear and accurate. Facts are stubborn things. Now, in the language of John's gospel, we would say it a little differently, but with the same emphasis. Evidences are stubborn things. The whole of John's gospel has been about evidences, facts, testimony. And they are stubborn things. And John has been giving us a barrage of evidence, a barrage of facts that point to Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, as we come to the last two verses of this incredible and wonderful gospel, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 21, John identifies these evidences as things. And we need to pay attention to these things. They are things that are facts. They are stubborn things that we must recognize are undeniable and incredibly important for us in our walk with him. Now, although I have been, I believe, for the most part, honorable as a son, diligent as a student, I am forced to state my main point in very simple, vulgar, plain, colloquial ways. In fact, I don't think that I'll ever, ever have a proposition in a sermon that will be as accurate as what I'm going to make it right now. But it must be said. So here it goes. In John 21... Verses 24 through 25, John is drawing our attention to two things. And I'm using that accurately. Two things that are critical to our understanding and growth. These two things will solidify our belief and bring vitality to our new life with Christ. Let's read this passage one more time and see if you can catch the things that John is talking about. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about what? These things. And who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, where every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the book that would be written. Did you catch what those two things are? These things, in verse 24, And the second would be many other things, many other things. And this is going to be our structure. This is how we're going to approach this passage. What then are the things that John is talking about specifically? They are the events. They are the encounters. They are the dialogues. They are the miracles. They are the signs. They are the healings. They are the teachings that took place while Jesus was on this earth. They are the evidences that are given to us through the eyewitness account of John and others. They are testimonies that bear witness to the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. They are the evidences of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, friends, these things that John reveals to us here, that John talks to us about, are critically important. Here at the end of this book. The first thing, then, I want you to notice is this. The testimony of John is selective. Again, look at verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. So the first thing we want to see here or that John reveals is that his testimony has been purposefully, deliberately selective. He hasn't recorded everything that there is to be said about who Jesus is and what he has done. He has carefully chosen events and activities and miracles and happenings and teachings that support his goal of providing sufficient evidence to point to the fact that Jesus is that Messiah. So instead, he's been very careful to to select the stories, the encounters, the dialogues, the teaching, the nuances even. This is why when you read one gospel and you read John, it's the same story, but maybe there's a different nuance there because John, in his eyewitness account, is telling what he saw and he's giving that nuance and it helps to shape his argument in presenting Jesus as this Messiah. So the reader here, then having read John's gospel, is able to see Jesus revealed for who he is and ultimately believe. And that's, of course, fleshed out in the key verse, which is John 20, 30, and 31, which you are tired of me quoting. But we have to because that is the melodic line. That is the theme that goes through this gospel, and everything hangs on it. So one more time here. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things, these, you can put in the parentheses there, Things, evidences, are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So these things are the evidences so that the readers can believe and ultimately have that life, that abundant and everlasting life. And we've labored over that over and over and over again. And John once again comes and he says, you know what, these are the things that I have written. Now, Those two confirming aspects about his eyewitness testimony. First of all, I want you to notice, John's testimony is a written testimony. Now, why is that important? What's so significant about the fact that it's, it's written? We might firstly say that there is a, a practical aspect here of having written his own gospel. It can be read, <laughs> right? It's pretty practical, all right? No internet during that time. It can be reread. It can travel to different places and be read in different places. It can be copied and recopied. It can be examined and verified. When you write out your eyewitness account, it is there to be examined, to be considered. It's not just some oral thing that you're saying. This is written down. People can take it home, so to speak. Of course, they wouldn't in that day, but. They could take it to their place, and they could examine whether it's consistent. It remains static. In other words, it, it avoids the possibility of natural embellishments. You know, you've played that story where you whisper something in someone's ear, and it goes down through the crowd, and by the end, of the, you know, by 30 people later, it's, it's a completely completely different thing. When it's written, it's written, and everyone sees what's written. So it holds its integrity. It is a record, when it's written, that will last through time, and that's why we have it here. Now friends, those are all practical reasons, but I think there's a greater reason why this is significant. And here's the reason, because God is a God of words. Just think about this. In the beginning, God created out of nothing by speaking it into existence. God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. Chapter 2 of Genesis. God formed man out of the dust of the earth. And he says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. his, His mouth was the agent of breathing life into mankind. And God created man uniquely in his own image, with the capacity to be a receiver of his words. Again, we've talked about this before. It's only man that can understand biblical truth. Right? Your cat, I'm sorry, cannot come to a Bible study and actually benefit from it, although you might think otherwise. God has created man uniquely with the capacity to be a revelation receiver. He gives the revelation We're able to receive it. And so God is a God of words, and he uses those words to communicate to man. In the Old Testament, he used prophets. In the New Testament, he did that through Jesus, and then through the apostles, and then ultimately through his word, and pastors then, through the ages, preaching his word. He is a God of words. And so when John says that he has written this gospel, there's something powerful that's going on here. It's like what Peter talked about in his second letter. You might want to turn there. Second Peter chapter one, verses nineteen and following. Second Peter chapter one. And here's what Peter says now. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the idea that that Peter is presenting here is this, is that although john for example wrote his gospel in his own personality with his own eyewitness accounts john also was being borne along by the holy spirit to pen those words so that the church of god can benefit from the written word so it's no small thing for john to say hey you know what i have written this because God ultimately in his sovereignty chose to breathe into what John was doing and it was his very own inspired word. John's testimony is written for all to read. That's pretty powerful, friends. What we have been studying is not only John's gospel, it is God's word. When God speaks and John speaks, it's the same thing. Because when John speaks, God is speaking. Now, a little side note here, some people say, well, you know, the red letters of the Bible, those are Jesus' words. We need to focus on them. No, it's the same thing. God inspired it all. It all has the same level of understanding and power and impact. It is God's holy word breathed out through chosen vessels, and in this case, the Apostle John. Secondly... I want you to notice here that John's testimony, he says, is genuine. It's genuine. He says, and we know this, or we know that his testimony is true. Now, he's speaking in the third person about himself here, and he is stressing the fact that what he has shared in this gospel is trustworthy, is genuine, it's true. You know, I'm not embellishing things, I'm just telling you what the facts are. Now, let's quickly summarize John's gospel under three headings, the prologue, the content, and the epilogue. We've been down this path already. We've, we've jumped in there. We've been swimming, in particular, in the content for a long time. And during that time, we can summarize the content in three ways. There were seven signs, and those signs pointed to the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be, right? He turned the water into wine. He healed the official son. He healed the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. He fed the 5,000. Uh, he walked on the water. He healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And John presents those things specifically as signs, seven of them. And then there were these seven I am's where, where Jesus was, was actively identifying himself with the great I am. And so all these I am's were demonstrations of his character and what he came to do. So here we have, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who completely satisfies. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then, of course, we had the Passion Week where we saw after the Last Supper, Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. All of these evidences, all of these stories, all of these encounters, all of the recorded uh, discourses that Jesus has with his disciples and others are all driving to the purpose statement that calls the reader to believe and have life. And then in the epilogue, it's kind of like the so what? He's saying, you know what? Feed the sheep. Follow me. So that is the first thing that John wants us to see. He wants us to see that he purposefully and carefully selected from the reservoir of eyewitness evidence what he believed was necessary to present Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. And what's interesting is that I haven't done the study specifically, but others have done the study to say that the, what John records really only covers like 21 days in the life of Jesus. Now, that's not necessarily starting here and it's 21 days ahead, but 21 days of of activity, okay? Um, And primarily, a big portion of that is the Passion Week. And so, there's a lot more that Jesus did. So, be assured that every moment in the life of Jesus is significant. And it would tell a story. It would reveal more and more about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so that leads us then to this second thing that John wants us to see. He wanted us to see that he selected carefully the evidence to present to you. And that evidence, by the way, is sufficient for you to believe and to comprehend that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But now, those who listen to the evidence John has presented and believe are blessed with an exhaustive life of learning and growing in Christ because, although John has been selective in his evidence, the testimony of Jesus is exhaustive. The testimony of Jesus is so full, is so rich, that John uses hyperbole here to describe it. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, he's, he's, he's demonstrating here that there's just an overabundance of data, of evidence about who Jesus really is. We've, we move from what seems like now a minuscule amount of evidence in, in John's selective presen- presentation of his gospel now, to an exhaustive library that contains all the events, sayings, teachings, discourses, words, activities of Christ, a library that cannot be contained in this world, a library that is full to overflowing. Just just get that picture. I mean, John's gospel is a rich, deep, long gospel, and yet he's just scratching the surface. He's hardly even touching on it. He's just presenting the simplicity that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but there's so much more for us to grasp and to learn and to understand. So this is the blessing for the believer. His new everlasting and abundant life is marked by an ongoing journey of growth in knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. In other words, it's not limited to John's gospel. John ends his gospel by saying, hey, listen, I've recorded all these things, but there is so much more. You and I will never exhaust that library. Now, there's a caution here with this verse, and it's important for me to say it because I've heard it used. This verse is sometimes used to justify practices that are not recorded in the Word of God by those who would identify themselves as believers. This is how it goes. People will say, well, you can't put God in a box. And then they'll quote this saying. Well, how can you be sure that this is wrong and that Jesus would not approve? Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in the Bible. We just don't know what they are. Let me ask you a question. I I mean this very, very carefully. I don't mean this in the philosophical sense. Can you put God in a box? Does God put himself in a box? It depends on what you mean. Does God communicate to us limitations of his character? The answer is yes. He is holy. We've started to build a box, haven't we? You understand what I'm saying? So these these things that are thrown out in Christian culture, well, you can't put God in a box. Well, God puts himself in a box. God breathed out his word, and his word gives principles that God will not cohabit with sin. He will not just brush sin away. There must be an exercise of wrath. Therefore, I will send my son who will stand in the place of those who will believe and will bear my wrath, okay? There is a box, and God determines that box. Now, we don't. So we must be careful with these sayings because it can communicate things that are improper and not true. This verse is not given to us so that we can feel free to live how we want and feel justified, Well, it may not be talked about in Scripture, but I can do this. This passage is given to us so that we who are His uh, his children can stand back in awe of the majesty and the beauty and the greatness of Jesus and worship Him as Messiah, the Son of God. It is pressing home that there is more to be learned about Jesus. And this is the verse that opens up John's Gospel to be connected to the rest of Scripture It is one book in the story of God's redemption of mankind. It is a beautiful and significant book, but it it does not stand alone. And in no way, shape, or form do I want to diminish the importance of John's gospel. I do want to minimize it at all, but I do want to say this, that John clearly recognizes that his gospel is not alone in declaring Jesus as Christ. The story of Jesus Christ runs through the pages of Scripture, all throughout the pages of Scripture. And it's an amazing and beautiful story. And it can be summarized by this very simple five points. And here's where we're going to go for the rest of our time, because I think this is really important. I think here's John's Gospel. John's Gospel is part of this this greater, wonderful outlay of a presentation of Jesus Christ. It's found in the Gospel. Now, what I'm going to present to you I would encourage you to write down uh, what I present to you. I would encourage you to memorize. It's simple and yet at the same time very, very helpful in grasping an overarching picture of what is going on in God's Word pointing to Jesus Christ, okay? And we'll list these five, and then we're going to walk through them one by one, okay? Here they are. In the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. Now that's a huge statement covering a lot of territory. But in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus is preached. In the Epistles, or the letters, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. Now, friends, it's, it's very simple, isn't it? But it gives some clarity as to what the Word of God is doing as it relates to Jesus Christ. All of God's Word points to Jesus Christ. It either is pointing ahead to Him, or it's pointing back to Him. Or it's pointing back to Him with the understanding that He is yet coming again. And so we can can find ourselves in these different sections of God's Word saying, okay, what's the point here? Well, if I'm in the Acts of the Apostles, I'm going to be hearing is, Preaching about Jesus Christ. Preaching about Jesus Christ. The epistles, the apostles are explaining who this Jesus Christ is in fuller and greater detail than the Gospels do. They're going to create the significance. Let's let's walk through then these five statements here one at a time. I hope you understand what I'm saying. These are the many other things now. But these are the many other things that are recorded for us in the pages of God's Word. And even there, there are many other things that are not recorded in the pages of God's Word about Jesus Christ. But let's, let's at least look at the many other things that are in a very broad, general sense, right? Let's look, first of all, then, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted. And there are a number of ways that that prediction takes place. Redemptive stories, stories of redemption, stories of deliverance that ultimately foreshadow Christ and are, are pointing and and ultimately fulfilled in him. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption, is it not? talks about a kinsman redeemer. It's pointing forward to the actual redeemer, the ultimate redeemer. Passover is a story that talks about a, a lamb that God provides, but pushes us forward to understand that there is a lamb of God that is going to be provided. In, in the book of Judges, or Joshua even, there are deliverances that take place that all point to, again, Jesus being that ultimate deliverer. That would be true of Judges. So there's this re- re- redemptive stories, And there are promises, promises given and fulfilled in the Old Testament that ultimately point to Christ, promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Israel. Some of them have been fulfilled, which demonstrates that God keeps his promises, and some promises are yet to be fulfilled. And we believe them because God has proved to us that he keeps his promises. There's typology then, and typology is simply um, pictures or people or events in the Old Testament that point to Jesus as the Messiah. Symbols, shadows, illusions, you might even say. That's taking the word typology maybe and broadening it a little bit, but the idea is here there are things that happen and, and pictures and, and people and, and events that happen that, that point, once again, give allusion to. And there are some that are specific types of who Jesus is. And sometimes those types are clearly identified and revealed in the New Testament. because They point back to the Old Testament and say, aha, here he is. Jesus is the rock. Remember that? And the rock, of course, is there in the wilderness. And he's the one that provided this, this water, this living water. There's prophecy, specific prophecies predicting Christ. Let me just read a few of them for you. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, unpacking that, talking about this this conflict between Satan and Christ and, you know, Satan's going to come and he's going to think he's victorious, but all he's done is just hardly scratch Jesus, ultimately. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you should call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Again, pointing forward to this Messiah that was going to come, this answer for Jerusalem, this this ultimate comforter and counselor and and suffering servant that would be this Messiah. And we have uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So all these pointing Christ. Then there are all these titles. All these titles you find throughout the Old Testament. You know, that this Messiah is called the desire of all nations. He's the head. He's the Lord. He's the man of sorrows. He's the messenger of the covenant. He's the prince, the signet ring. He's the son of righteousness, the stone, the servant, the shepherd, the redeemer, Shiloh, to name a few. Titles, titles, titles. All of these, friends, are are pointing to the fact that Jesus is this coming Messiah. They're predicting him. And so if we go to Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after his resurrection, meets up with two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Remember that story? And in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, this is what Jesus did. And beginning with Moses... I think I have it up here. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he, that's Christ, interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus himself at that time is going through, like this list I gave you, all these different places in the Old Testament that were predicting and pointing to his coming as this Messiah. So we can say then, in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicting. Secondly, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but at least enough time to say that each Gospel does present a particular facet of Jesus. Same Jesus, different angle. Same Jesus, different focus. All right? Now, again, talked about this before. You're all out there, you're looking at this podium here from a different angle and you're going to see things from a different perspective, right? Steve over here is going to be able to see from one angle, all right? Um, over here, let's see, JD is going to see the podium from another angle. Well, in the same sense, each of the gospel writers present Jesus in a different way, maybe because they have a different audience or because it's a different facet of, of who Jesus is that they want to put on display. And so Mark or Matthew presents him as king, Mark presents him as Servant Luke presents him as man, and ultimately John reveals Jesus as God. But all of this is revelation. All of this is exposure. All of this is putting Jesus on display in his life, in his teachings, in his activities. In the gospel, Jesus is revealed. And the reason we're not spending so much time is we spent two years revealing Jesus in the pages of John's gospel. In the Acts, then, we have Jesus preached. Now, I want you to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We're going to look at just a few of these messages. Not all of them, but a few of them. Um, and I just want you to note, first of all, that he is preached by the apostle Peter. Acts chapter 2, verses 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both lord and christ this jesus whom you crucified this is him preaching it's about christ and who is this christ what has he done chapter 3 verse 17 peter goes on and now brothers i know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers but god or but what god foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his christ would suffer he thus fulfilled Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which he became the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then it was preached by Stephen. Stephen preached Christ. Acts chapter 7, verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And we know Stephen was martyred, right, for preaching Christ. Then there's Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. It's Pretty clear. The content of the preaching was that Jesus is the Christ. The Apostle Paul, after the Damascus Road encounter and after he is helped and encouraged by another brother explaining the things of God, and immediately, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 20, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. The rest of the book of Acts is about these missionary journeys that Paul and Barnabas and Mark and Timothy took around the Mediterranean, It's the latter part of this book is where you see the the context for a lot of the letters that you read in the Bible take place during the book of Acts. And so we can also say that the church also was preaching Christ throughout the book of Acts. Now friends, that's powerful. What was it that the apostles were preaching? They were preaching Christ, which means they were preaching what Christ did on the cross. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happened? The church was formed and the church was populated by people who were believing and experiencing life because of that belief. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. His person and work are fleshed out more and more for his children to understand. So let's look his person. Talking here about his character, his attributes. As you open up the letters, you learn about the deity of Christ. You learn about his humility. You learn about his love, his holiness, his servant attitude. We can go on and on, just having the epistles kind of explain and discover and reveal for us who this Jesus is. But not only his person, but also his work. This would be what he has done. I list here, you know, the cross, the gospel, and life in Christ. But his work involves things like this, how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, really emphasized in books like Romans and Hebrews and Galatians. The cross and his sacrifice is explained. Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, go on. The gospel is explained. Life in Christ is explained. Becoming like Christ is explained. Suffering with Christ is explained. How Christ is the head of the body of the church is explained. How the church is to function together and live for God's glory is explained. And just go on and on. Listen to some of these different letters and I've, what I, just, I went through all the different letters, and I pulled out just a few verses from each letter, just to kind of emphasize, this is what's, what they're saying about Christ. Romans, chapter five verse one. "Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, well, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ." 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses one and two and i when i came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified second corinthians 5:21 for our sakes that's god made him that's christ to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of god in him galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 but when the fullness of time had come god sent forth his son Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Let's just pause there. The point here is this: we might see the story unfolding in the Gospels, but the epistles now explain that story in its context and its significance and its impact and what it means to us. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we're told: husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Philippians 2, 5-8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality to equality uh, with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, we're learning more about the character and the purpose of Christ and the implication that is to us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 17, or through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and inv- invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, further explanation, further clarity as to who this Jesus is. Then we have uh, First Thessalonians, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is the practical dynamic of Jesus' activity with his church. You're not going to get that from just reading the Gospels. Right? These are things that are further explained that are inspired by God, by men who are writing and penning these further explanations. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, and so on. But Jesus Christ has an impact here, even on the ministry of proclaiming the gospel. Then we have Titus, which we read earlier as we began our service. For the grace of God has appeared, Titus uh, two eleven and following bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And we just go on and on through These epistles and each of them in a different way, with a different purpose, with a different audience, is explaining Christ more, is revealing his person, is explaining his work, is is helping the church understand how they are to relate to him now that he is their Lord and Savior. Now friends, we are blessed in the context of those epistles we come face-to-face with words and concepts that are used to explain the significance and the impact of the gospel that comes to us through Christ. Words like justification. Words like election, propitiation, redemption, adoption, regeneration, inheritance, sanctification, glorification. These are all words that flow out of the epistles. These are all deep theological words. Well, they're really not deep theological words. They're words that describe a dynamic and an aspect of Christ's activity or his relationship to us. So it is in the epistles that we are rooted and built up in Christ because he is explained fuller and um, further for us. And Then, in the book of Revelation... Jesus is expected. He is expected to return for his bride, the church. He is expected to establish his earthly kingdom. He is expected to judge the nations. and So much of the book of Revelation is about the the scrolls being opened and the judgment that takes place is expected to make all things new turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22 Revelation chapter 22 we're drawing things now to this this focal point this end beginning at verse 12 and 13 behold I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let us, the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price let him come there are many more things <laughs> that could be written about Jesus Christ And even this morning, even over the last two years, we have just scratched the surface. But this word, this Bible, this blessed book, is a revelation of Christ. He's predicted in the Old Testament. He's revealed in the New. Or saying the Gospels, He is preached in the book of Acts. He is explained in the epistles and he is expected in the book of Revelation. Now friends, I want us to approach this closing in a number of different ways. I want to assume that in the context of our church, there are those who are unbelievers, there are those who are genuine believers, and there are those that are professing believers. The Gospel of John has application for all of you. And the application is belief. Jesus has been put on display for you these last two years through the pages of John's Gospel, week after week after week. And even times when we stepped away from John's Gospel, the same thing has taken place. When other people have come, Jesus has been the focus of what's going on. If you're an unbeliever, I plead with you. Look at the evidence that has been presented. It is sufficient. It is complete in the the point that it is enough to tell the story, to reveal the truth for who Jesus is and what he has done. There is no more that has to be said by John to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is. Will you believe? Then there are those who are professing believers. Professing believers are those who give every evidence that they are believers but really aren't believers. In our American Christian culture, there's a lot of professing believers. Or there's a lot of people who think maybe they are walking with God, they are born again, they have this regeneration, but really have never done that because they've taken on the garments of religiousness and they know how to Come to church, they know how to sit in a small group, they, they know you're supposed to read your Bible that it's become a culture in which they've been accustomed to, but real regeneration has not taken place and the reason I know this is true is not because I have some inroad in knowing about you is because some of you have communicated to me, "Hey, I was that professing believer for years, until I came face to face with my sinfulness and my need for a savior and I came to God and my sin and embrace him as my Lord and Savior. My, My desire for you, if you are a professing believer, that's something, as I say, that you're like, you know what? Rod knows me. He's singing to my heart. I don't know you. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing that, and I'm just pleading with you, believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that he is the Son of God. And in believing, experience life, new fresh, abundant, everlasting life. And we will rejoice with you. But then there are those who are believers. Those who have been sitting week after week and saying, but I believe. (laughs) I've, I've become a child of God. Why is it every week, you know, believe, 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 believe. Because in our Christian walk, we are always tempted to not believe. And we're tempted to get to a place where we don't actually think that Jesus will satisfy me today in this particular situation, in this problem. So rather than embrace Christ as our answer and as our satisfaction and the food or the the water or the life that we need, we turn to other things Oh, we are his children, but we, we battle unbelief. And so we've had two years of saying, keep on believing. Keep on seeing Jesus afresh for who he is. Keep on recognizing that he is this Messiah who not only came historically, but came personally for you so that you would be born again, that you would be totally, radically recreated as His workmanship, prepared for good works, that He grants you life, new life, guided by Him, prepared by Him, ordained by Him. Friends, we have just scratched the surface. And as we Open up the rest of God's word. It screams to us, Jesus is the Christ. And he is worthy of our belief and worship and praise and adoration. Will you do that? Will you recognize? Well known song has these words the Love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin when years of time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and mountains call, God's love so sure shall endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and where the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints in angel song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the things that John has revealed to us, has recorded for us so that we could grasp a better understanding of who Jesus is, and Lord, so that we could believe and, Lord, ultimately have life. But, Lord, we are excited that even in ending this journey in John's gospel, there is more for us to feast on. There is more for us to know. There is more about Christ that you want us to see. And, Lord, that we are blessed with a lifelong growth in Christ, a lifelong growth in our knowledge and wonder of who he is, a lifelong pursuit that is gleaned from taking time in the word of God and sitting under the preaching of the word of God and singing about the glories of God. We have a lifetime, Lord, to celebrate that and to grow and to be encouraged in our walk with you. So, Lord, we thank you for John's gospel. We thank you for the way it has clarified things for us. We thank you for the way that it has directed us in so many ways. But, Lord, we also thank you that it is not over. That, Lord, it is beginning and that it continues on. And, Lord, that as your children, we are thoroughly blessed. And Lord, we have this exhaustive testimony about you to feast on and to rejoice over together. Guide us now. Direct us. Strengthen us. Mold us and shape us to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in your precious holy name.